John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. This is God's word. Thank you very much. Do keep that uh, passage in John chapter 12 open, if you would. Let's uh, pray as we consider it together. God our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for the surprising things that he taught us that we would not otherwise have understood. And we ask that as we listen to this very surprising passage, you would give us a true understanding of it and a right response for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me begin with a, a question. Do you want to be influential? I hope you do. I uh, googled something like this and it took a few nanoseconds to find uh, what seemed to be thousands of articles with titles like, How Badly Do You Want to Be Successful? How to Be an Influential Person? The Wow Factor. How to be truly influential, corporate career success, how to become CEO, and so on. The internet is full of it. But I hope that you do want to be influential. My guess is that many of us will be thinking, well, no, that's not me. My ambitions are much more modest. But I hope you have ambitions. I hope you hope that by the time you die, you'll have made some impact on the world. I hope you wouldn't be satisfied just to be a sort of couch potato sitting in front of a television looking at the emptiness of celebrity. I hope you'd like to make a real difference in the world, some one way or another. But the question how to be really influential is answered in the most extraordinary way in this morning's passage, where in John chapter 12, which is roughly halfway through John's 
telling of the Jesus story. And roughly speaking, if you're a a Bible reader, you may know this, roughly speaking, the first half of John's Gospel is, uh, sometimes it's called the book of the signs or miracles, the signposts, in, in which Jesus is doing a number of great things, turning water into wine, healing people, and so on. And, and, and finally, in John chapter 11, raising a man who's been dead uh, uh, four days after he's, he's died. The book of the, the signs, greatness, strength, majesty, power. And the second half of John's Gospel is really the story of the run-up to and then Jesus' death itself. And chapter 12 is the, is the kind of hinge of the gospel between the signs and the suffering. And it's a very, very strange chapter. It's like, it's like a place where two rivers meet and you never quite know where the waters are going to be going. Sometimes it'll be going in a positive direction, sometimes a negative direction. It's a very, very surprising chapter. Immediately before our passage, which begins in verse 12, immediately before that, in verses 1 to 11, uh, we were probably the, the Saturday before Good Friday in the village of Bethany, just a couple of miles outside uh, Jerusalem, at a strange dinner party. Verses 1 to 11 describe a very strange dinner party because at the dinner party is Lazarus, who just a few weeks before has been raised from the dead publicly by Jesus with many witnesses, and also Jesus um, himself. And now, verse 12, we're on the next day, that is the Sunday. That is what we call Palm Sunday, a week before Easter uh, Sunday. I'm going to divide the passage, um, first of all, verses 12 through to 22. And the thing I want us to notice in verses 12 to 22 is this, that that if you can beat death, if you can defeat death, you will win the world. And I want us to see that that verses 12 through 22, they portray to us Jesus on the brink of a ministry of worldwide influence. If you want to be influential, this is the way to do it. Just glance back, if you would, at chapter 11, verse 57, the last verse of chapter 11, where we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the, uh, uh, all the religious leaders of the day, had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. So Jerusalem and the surroundings were covered, as it were, in wanted posters. Jesus was a wanted man. Then have a look on it at at, at chapter 12, verse 9, just before our passage, where we read that a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany, just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem, and they came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So Jesus was a wanted man, but he is by now a found man. Everybody knows where he is. So verse 12, the large crowd, the great crowd that had come for the feast, that is the Jewish feast of Passover, uh, was um, they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem at the time of Passover, was it was a, a city that had maybe 100,000 people, its normal population. And at Passover time, it swelled to many times that number maybe a million, maybe even more. 
massive um, swelling. It was as though London, instead of being 10 million or so, suddenly became 100 million. You can imagine that the crush and the crowds, it was a tremendously um, intense time. And a year before this, back in John chapter 6, the previous Passover, a crowd up in the north of the country in Galilee had wanted to make Jesus king. You you can read about that later in chapter 6. And they wanted to make him king, and Jesus said, no, it's not the right time, and he, he slipped away, and he hid so that they couldn't do that. But now he comes quite openly into Jerusalem. And I want us to notice that everything about his entry says, here is a winner. First of all, the palm branches, verse 13. This great crowd take palm branches and go out to meet him. And palm trees and branches from from palm trees were used to greet a winner, a victor. You know, from a couple of history books in the in the Apocrypha, the books of Maccabees, that when in the second century BC, Judas Maccabeus and later Simon Maccabeus, two of the great Jewish liberators, came into Jerusalem, they were greeted with palm branches. So if you wave palm branches before someone, you're, you're saying in the symbolism that everybody understood this man is a winner. And then they sing, verse 13, Hosanna, which is a sort of three cheers. And they sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And most of that comes from one of the Psalms. Uh, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. It's, 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 he's a winner. He's the King. This is the King of Israel. This is the conqueror. And we're, we're well, welcoming him. And then as we heard in our children's spot in verse 14, they find a donkey. And uh, he, he comes in on a donkey, which symbolizes humility and peace, the opposite of the war horse. But it still symbolizes, in this case, the winner. And John says that they later understood, verse 16, they later understood that this was the fulfillment of a prophecy. Do you see verse 15? Don't be afraid, O daughter of Zion, that is, people of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And that's a prophecy from the Old Testament, from the book of Zechariah, uh, chapter 9. And at the time, they didn't realize that that was, was what was happening. But later they realized that when, when Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day, he was fulfilling that prophecy, that one day a king would come. And if you read Zechariah, chapter 9, you'll find that the king there is a king who brings peace to the world. He conquers, but he brings peace to the world. You'll find that if you read the, the verses uh, around there in, in Zechariah. And later they realized that's what he was doing. But the question is, why did this crowd gather? Why, when Jesus of Nazareth came into Jerusalem on that Sunday, why did such a big crowd gather? If you read Matthew and Mark and Luke's Gospels, it's not crystal clear why the crowd gathers. And John fills in for us a missing piece of the jigsaw. So have a look at verse 17 and 18, and you'll see why the crowd gathered. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, that's a much smaller crowd. A few weeks before in Bethany, or outside Bethany, when Jesus stood at the entrance to a tomb of a man who died four days before, 
And a small crowd, I imagine, was there. It can't have been more than a, a few hundred at the very most was there. But they'd, they'd been there and they'd seen him call out, Lazarus, come out. And they'd seen this man who everybody knew was dead, well dead, four days dead. They'd seen him come out. And John says that that crowd continued to spread the word. And you can imagine the conversations in this big crowd on, on what we call Palm Sunday. You know, somebody says, uh, this Jesus, you know this, this figure, this Jesus on the donkey, he can raise people from the dead. And someone else says, no, pull the other one. Don't be absurd. Yes, says the person, he really can. He raised that man, Lazarus, in Bethany just a few weeks ago. No, says someone, you're imagining it. It's just a pious rumor that's grown in the telling. No, no, he, he can. It's true. That, you see that man over there? He told me. Well, let's ask him. You over there, is it true? And the man says, yes, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Stone cold sober true. I was there. You can ask this person, this person, this person. We were there. We saw it with our eyes, all of us. We're not deluded. We, we saw him do it. We heard him do it. We watched as Lazarus came out. And you can imagine these people in the crowd saying this, continuing to spread the word, saying this man can raise the dead. This man has power to bring a, a dead man back uh, to life. It's an extraordinary thing. And so verse 18, many people, because they'd heard that Jesus had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. That's why the, the crowd was there. So what's happening is they're greeting the man, not just the man who they hope is going to be a great winner over the Roman occupy, uh, occupiers. They're greeting the man who can defeat death. They're greeting the man who has power over death. And the result of that is that Jesus seems to be on the brink of a worldwide victory. So verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. They're trying to to have him discredited. They're trying to kill him. It's getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees are saying, this is, we are failing miserably. We're trying to, to squash this Jesus of Nazareth movement. But, but, but he's raised a man from the dead and everybody knows that, so we're not getting anywhere. And you might think they were exaggerating when they said, see, the whole world has gone after him. And then verse 20, their words acquire a prophetic character and they begin to be fulfilled. Now verse 20, there were some Greeks. And Greeks doesn't mean people who are citizens of modern day Greece. Greeks is a shorthand, it's a sort of umbrella term for the rest of the world. In Jewish terms, Gentiles, particularly educated people, people who speak Greek, which is what any educated person did in those days. So some Greeks, some representatives of the rest of the world appeared. Some people who weren't Jews appeared. It's a bit like the Magi at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, these representatives of the rest of the world. And they, and they come, and they've come up to worship at the feast. Maybe they're God-fearers on the edge of Judaism. And and they, they, they come to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is a sort of Greekish kind of place. It's a sort of place where people would speak Greek. So if you're going to pick one of the disciples, you know, he's a good one to pick because he, he, he'll probably speak your language and laugh at your jokes. So they, 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 they come to Philip with a request and they say, Sir, we'd like to see Jesus. 
We want not just to look at him, we want to see him, we want to have an interview with him, we want to meet him, we want to get to know him, we want to become acquainted with Jesus. And Philip realizes, of course, that these are Gentiles, so he's a bit nervous. He goes to see Andrew, who also is from Bethsaida, as it turns out, and in turn they tell Jesus. Let's pause there. What's happened is this. Jesus has defeated death. And because he has defeated death, the word spreads. Here is the only man in human history who's, who, who, who can bring back from the, the dead a man who's been dead four days. Here is a man who is the conqueror over death. Here is the man who's the winner. Greet him with palm branches. Say Hosanna. Sing psalms. Say this is the king. And, and, and so they, they, they do that. Let's just pause there for a moment. There's a really important truth here, which is this. Ultimately, nobody's going to be worldwide influential in any lasting sense and can, in a, until they can defeat death. I remember going on a fascinating tour of the Houses of Parliament. And you go around the Houses of Parliament, I mean, I recommend it, it's really interesting. And you go around lots of busts and statues and portraits of famous people. And the interesting thing about all the famous people whose portraits and busts and statues, you know, and everything, and paintings you portraits you see, is they're all dead. Well, except one or two who are nearly dead. Um, I mean, but they're, <laughs> and they're all going to be dead soon. You could write a book, couldn't you? Um, Great Leaders Who Died. be a very long book. Every political career, somebody said some time ago, ends in failure. Every human career ends in failure because every human career ends in death. And Jesus is the only man who can defeat death. And therefore, Jesus is the man that the whole world wants to see. And so when you get to the end of verse 22, you've reached the stage where it looks as though John's telling of the Jesus story is going to go like this. Jesus started working in public and he did wonderful things. He turned water into wine. He healed somebody with a word at a distance. He healed a man who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. He gave sight to a man born blind. And, and, and he did many, many things. And he brought back from the dead a man who'd been, been, been dead four days. And then because he could do all those things, and supremely because he could conquer death, the whole world hailed him as king. And then his worldwide reign began and he ruled the world, and the world was a better place. That's how you'd expect the story to go on. Now have a look at verse 23, because here's an extraordinary shock. Jesus answered them. Jesus replied. And it's a very strange reply. These representatives of the rest of the world have said they want to see Jesus, because he's the one who can defeat death. And Jesus replied... The hour has come for the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, the human being, the human one, to be glorified. And in John's Gospel, that word glorified, it means pretty much the same as lifted up. And if you read John's Gospel carefully, you'll discover that that word glorified, or, 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 or the expression lifted up, is talking not just about Jesus being recognized as great. 
It is talking about him being lifted up on the cross. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for me to die. You read through John's Gospel, you find a number of times where Jesus and John say the hour had not yet come, but now it has. It's now time for me to die. Isn't that a strange response? When you were on the edge, on the brink of worldwide success, when you've raised a man from the dead, when representatives of the rest of the world begin to, 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 to come and knock on your door and say they want to come and see you, now he says it is time to die. Now it is time to die, and then he tells us why. And verse 24 is one of the most important verses in John's gospel. I tell you the truth. Amen, amen, literally. Truly, truly. I tell you the truth. Listen to this. This is really important. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, what Jesus is doing, and you, you, you meet this often in the book of Proverbs, is he's, he's saying, here's a very simple example of how life works. And he takes an example from agriculture or horticulture, and he says, here's, here's something, you, you don't need to be scientific to understand this. If you put a grain of wheat on a table, on the kitchen table, you can look at it, you can um, say prayers over it, you can breathe over it, you can come back and look at it in the middle of the night, you can look at it the next morning, you can look at it for many days, many weeks, many months, and many years, and it's never going to become anything more than a grain of wheat. You, you don't need to be brilliant, you don't need a science degree to understand that. If you leave a grain of wheat on the kitchen table, that's all it's ever going to be, is a grain of wheat. So he says, we all know that until it dies, that is to say, until it goes down and is planted or buried into the darkness, nothing's going to happen to it. But when, paradoxically, when you put it down into the darkness and you bury it, then it germinates, and then it grows, and then you get a harvest, and then it will will, will turn into many grains of wheat. He says, that's how life is in the physical world. We all know that. There's nothing particularly clever about that. It's obvious. And Jesus says, if that's how it is in the physical world, that's how it is in life, unless a grain of wheat dies. And primarily, Jesus is speaking about himself. He's he's going to be speaking about us in a moment. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, it doesn't matter how many miracles I do, doesn't matter how good my teaching is, I can go around raising the dead day after day after day after day. And I could become superficially popular. I could have a big fan club. But no lives would be changed. Nobody would be forgiven. Nobody would would be turned round from going their own way to going God's way. Nobody's heart would be changed. There would be no lasting influence. And when I died, that would be the end of it. I would be a footnote in the history books. And he says, it's only, it's only when I fall into the ground and die. It's only when I'm crucified. It's only when I die the death of sinners. It's only when I take the penalty for sin that I can defeat death. And ultimately, Jesus is saying, the only reason I could raise Lazarus from the dead, the only reason I could bring Lazarus out of the tomb, is because I myself am going to get into the tomb, as it were, in, in place of Lazarus. The only reason... 
I can turn round the lives of self-centered people and change their lives and give them forgiveness and give them new life and change their hearts is because I myself will bear on the cross the penalty for their sins. And when I do that, then my life will bear much fruit. And all over the world, there are men and women who are the fruit of Jesus' death. Every time a man or woman puts their trust in Jesus and walks with him and becomes a real, genuine heart Christian, I'm not talking about just outward religiosity, but real heart change, every time that happens, there is a fruit of Jesus' death. And none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for Jesus' death. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it it, it produces many seeds. So Jesus understood that. And he knew right from the start of his ministry that that was the only way in which he could become lastingly influential. It was only because he died that there are today billions of men and women all over the world who are followers of Jesus. And even today, all over the world, there will be men and women coming to faith in him for the first time and their hearts will be changed. And that was because he died. And the first thing to, to, to be clear about, if, you, if, if somebody's saying, and it, maybe you're here today and you say, well, I'm not a real Christian. Or maybe you say, I'm not a Christian at all, never have been. So good that you're here. I'm really grateful for the privilege. I'm grateful to you for being willing to listen to a Christian preacher preaching from the Bible for a few minutes. It's very good of you. Thank you for being here. But the first thing to grasp about being a real Christian is that that, that, that a real Christian is a man or woman for whom Jesus died. A man or woman for whom Jesus took the penalty of all our self-centeredness, our messed upness, what the Bible calls our sin. He took that. And he, in place of us, as it were, died and, died and was buried, as it were, was planted in the ground like that seed. And he did that on our behalf. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And in verse 25 and 26, he says, what was true for him is in some sense true of everybody of his followers. So verse 25, he says, the one, and he's talking about anyone here, anyone who loves his life will lose it. In other words, the person who loves their life, and I want me, I want to be at the center of my life, I want to be great, I want to be influential, I want people to think well of me, I want to be comfortable, I want to be the one who makes the decisions about my life. I'm going to be like that grain of wheat on the kitchen table. And whatever, whatever success I may have in this, in this life, it's never going to last. And ultimately I will be alone, like that seed. The one who loves his life will lose it while the one who hates his life in this world, and he's not talking about self-harm, he's talking about the one who, who learns to have their life turned inside out, so that although there's always part of me that wants me to be at the center, there's now something inside me, there's some change inside me that makes me begin to want to live for others. The one who hates his life in this world will 
keep it for eternal life, that is, the life of the age to come. And so Jesus is saying to us, if you and I want to be influential, if we want the story at the end of our lives to be that this man, this woman, did something that really counted for the life of the age to come, there is only one way to do it, and that is to walk in the footsteps of the one who, like a grain of wheat, fell into the ground and died, to to walk in his footsteps. And to those who do, Jesus makes a wonderful promise in verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, that is, follow him in the footsteps of the cross, and where I am, and he's speaking of being with the Father, where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And Jesus is saying that although everything in our nature rebels against the idea of surrendering to Jesus and walking in the footsteps of the one who died for others, everything in our nature rebels against that. Everything says, says to me, I will not do that. Everything says to me, I must love my life and hold on to my life and make my own decisions. Jesus is saying paradoxically that when I, when I begin to walk with him and I accept with gratitude that he has died to pay the penalty for my sins and I begin to walk with him and he begins to change my heart so that I begin imperfectly, but I just begin to live for God and live for others, the Father, God the Father, promises that one day I will be with him, with Jesus, and that the Father will honor me, and that the day will come when those who've lived their lives in the footsteps of Jesus, in real Christian discipleship for, uh, um, uh, and living for others, the day will come when the Father honors every man or woman who's done that and says, now this one is mine. This one belongs to me. Isn't that a wonderful thing? So if you're a Christian today, as a number of us, I'm sure, are, maybe you've been Christians for a number of years, this comes as a challenge and a promise to us. It comes as a challenge uh, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to hate our lives in this world, to learn to live for others, to learn to say no to self, but with a wonderful promise that those who do that by God's grace, walking with Jesus, one day will be with him in the Father's presence and honored by the Father. And if you're not as yet a real Christian believer, and maybe this is quite new to you, and maybe you've come across a kind of Christianity which is shallow and triumphalist and says, become a Christian and all your problems will be solved. And maybe you're thinking, hey, it doesn't look like Jesus teaches that. Dead right, he doesn't. And if that's you, I want to say to you, do get to grips with the rest of us with real Christianity and real discipleship of Jesus. And and with this topsy-turvy truth that just as in agriculture and horticulture a seed has to go down into the darkness and die to bear fruit, so with our lives. It's only following the Lord Jesus who died for sinners walking in his footsteps, that ultimately our lives will count. And at the end of time, when the stories are told, uh, the, the, the people we think have been influential, the kinds of ways in which we think influence is to be got in the world and in human history, 
will prove to be a mirage. And all sorts of surprising men and women who've learnt to say no to self and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus will finally be seen to have been very greatly influential and their lives will have counted for a very great deal. Let me stop there and uh, be quiet for a moment. I'll say a prayer and then I'll hand back to Matt. God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the man for others, the grain of wheat who fell into the earth and died, and by his death has borne much fruit. We thank you for his death for sinners. And we ask that by grace we might walk in his footsteps as disciples of Jesus. In his name. Amen.